This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 6, 2016, the That Mexican Thing edition. <laughs> I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Let me pass the mic to John Dickerson to face the nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And across intergalactic time and space in New Haven, it's Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And hello, John. Hi. On this week's Gabbath... Gabbath Clava. Let the giggles begin. (laughs) That was like a stubbed toe. On this week's GabFest, did the New York Times tax revelation sabotage Trump's election chances? Hillary Clinton, you know she's crafty. How will she use those revelations in the debate? Then Mike Pence, looking down the barrel of a gun, said, I'm going to get it together. He went slow and low on Tim Kaine and won the debate. That is the new style, I guess. Uh, Then the Supreme Court, without its brass monkey, that funky monkey, Antonin Scalia, reconvenes for a new term with five guys and three girls. Will they get anything done? We'll have cocktail like chatter. Super failed, super failed sitcom yeah. pitch. I know. It was like the Brady Bunch, only not. Then in Slate Plus, we're going to fight for our right to pick the best political songs ever recorded. You guys are so fucking lame. What? I can't believe this. John Dickerson. What? After showing us up about your Beastie Boys knowledge. I just dropped... 12 Beastie Boys songs into that first segment. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I thought you meant I was lame for not mm-hmm. understanding what you guys were talking about about the yeah. Slate Plus segment. And now I'm in trouble. What have I done? You no, no, we no, cut, no, we caught so much hell for that. I know for we the caught so Boys. much hell. I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to put every single Beastie Boys song title into this introduction and see what happens. Yeah, but well, I never once, once, like, once you got to fight for your right to party, I, yeah. I like, I figured, oh, great, okay, yeah. that's what he's been doing. <laughs> you didn't get. The, it took me that long though. The, the brass monkey, <laughs> yeah, that funky no. monkey. Well, I thought, oh, why is he that's saying? That's what you were saying. saying that Scalia is that what Scalia? I'm, I, I was, I'm just a little slow. I've only had like half a cup of coffee. Um, so for all you haters out there. I can Google Beastie Boys song titles. <laughs> anyway, to join Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our Boston show, there's still a few tickets left, very few tickets left for our October 26th show at the Wilbur Theater at 7.30 p.m. John did not make his Wilbur noise. That was good. <laughs> you can visit slate.com slash live for tickets or maybe visit Paul's Boutique for tickets. I don't know. We hope to see you there on October 26th. The Donald Trump taxes scoop nabbed by the New York Times mesmerized political America, at least at least journalistic political America at the beginning of the week, unrefuted by Trump. The story used just three pages of Trump's taxes from 1995 to reveal that Trump had claimed a $916 million loss that year and may therefore have been able to duck federal income taxes between 1993 and 2010. The story is deep and complicated and somewhat marvelous. John, what is most damaging in the story? That he lost a billion dollars, that he didn't pay federal taxes, or that he used such chicanery and sleazeball loopholes? Well, the the final question may be the most interesting one, because it may be, I mean, sleazeball loopholes or known like as the tax code. My understanding of it is it's not like creating a shell company in the Cayman Islands and and like saying you sell ice cream when you don't sell ice cream and having a guy named Vinny on the corner do your taxes. I mean, he basically took advantage of the tax code. So the so I'd say the third 
Uh, well, but, wouldn't but, matter but the, except. Well, but there's a public perception of whether correct, it's totally, baseball and totally. Shakira. Yeah, I was just going to say. I would say uh, that may be the facts of the case. It doesn't matter. Somebody who doesn't pay almost a billion dollars, who is able to write down a billion dollar loss, uh, seems like somebody who got around it. I think it's a peanut cluster of those things. I think it's the most recent example of a thing he's done that seems underhanded. Because there's been all this pressure built into the system by the Clinton people constantly talking about the tax returns, because it's been a norm for 40 years of presidential politics to release your tax returns, because he's had shifting positions on whether he'll release his tax returns going back all the way to August, when he said, well, I'd have no problem giving back the tax returns, this whole kind of he's hiding something feeling now it's the aha, this is what he's been hiding, which goes to the underlying question of trust with him, and that you're never going to get a straight story from him the he's no he's not so successful as a billionaire i actually think that we kind of already knew he'd had these big losses of course this hangs a big lamp on it but all of that stuff i think is less important than the big thing which is that at this late stage in the campaign it came at the end of a very bad week and it basically if you're not owning the day's news cycle in a campaign you're losing and he this was one in which he was on his heels it required all kinds of of statements by his surrogates that were uh, not good, like that he was a genius, which you might be able to carry out that argument if we talked for 20 minutes, but for regular people, think like losing a billion dollars means you're a genius. Um, Rudy Giuliani, who made that case, prosecuted a lot of people and made a big public career out of going after people who used the tax code to avoid paying taxes all legally. In fact, he lost some of the cases he brought, but he, at the earlier part of his career, succeeded in part by playing on this idea that seems rational enough among most people, which is like, if you make a bunch of money and you don't pay any taxes, that seems really wrong. So I don't know if there's one thing, but it was a whole kaleidoscope of things, which then distracted the campaign further and caused them to say things that were even a little harder to understand in the regular public. Emily, which of the particular sin seems most egregious to you? Or rather, which of these seems most damaging politically? Those are two different questions. Uh, I'm going to go over the first question. What bothers me the most about this is that Trump claims that he's the guy to reform the tax code because he knows how to manipulate the system and, and has experienced how rigged it is. But none of his tax reform proposals would address the idea of this kind of write-off. So I just like the hypocrisy of that. I mean, in fact, he would lower the corporate tax rate for real estate developers and other corporations to 15% and so would benefit even more than he did. But then I think... And actually, wait, can I can I add to that for a second yes. before you make your second point, which is that he would also get rid of the estate tax. And it appears that one of the long games that you play if you're a real estate developer is you continually roll over and roll over and roll over things into the future. And the only way you get rid of it is ultimately by paying taxes or by dying and and, and it, it's, it hits your estate. And if you get rid of the estate tax, then the, the, the tax burden is never even borne by the estate. So, it's a, so getting rid of the estate tax is a hugely self-dealing mechanism if you're President Trump. Yes, anyway, that is continue. such a good point. I'm glad you raised that. And also I have learned in the last week that real estate in general, um, there's a way of carrying forward losses that you can write off investments that were not your money, where you got other people to invest if there's a loss, and this seems to be what Trump did, then you get to take the write-off, even though it wasn't your money that was actually at risk. So all of that just seems questionable. And the part about the estate tax is like damn right sinister, if you ask me. 
Then I also think there's an interesting tax policy question about this whole idea of the net operating loss and how long you should be able to carry it forward. And why can't normal the rest of us have this kind of tax break? Like, if if well, you one, can't what the pass through tax break where uh, small businesses take losses on their personal income rather than corporate is a lots of people. It's been a debate for years and regular people can take it. I understand that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not a small business. What if, for example, one were to have sold a house and lost some money on that house? Why couldn't one as an individual under the same theory, whatever this theory is that supports this idea, you could argue that, you know, regular people who are not incorporated should also be able to benefit from it. And there's just something about the difference here. And and maybe there's a perfectly rational argument about how we want businesses to take risks and we don't want individuals to take risks. But I, I just more suspect that there's something you know, I mean, not surprisingly, we have the kind of tax policy here that um, is it, it's this, this dates from 1918. It's not like something that necessarily we passed yesterday with a great deal of um, thought and chin stroking. When it also the, the provision of the tax code, while it may be available to everyone, the people who take benefit from it the most, um, some overwhelming percentage of it are from the very top and most wealthy. Two well, percent of the entire net operating loss claimed in 1995 was Donald Trump. Of the whole country. Of the entire country, yeah. 2% yeah. from this one person. Yeah. So yeah. that but I'm does saying suggest even, that his is out of line. Right. Even if but, even if you say this is a legitimate use of the tax right. code, which I think it probably is, he was abusing it in some fashion. But, he, but he, I guess even more broadly, I wanted to just not leave the impression that this is like every mom and pop. Every mom and pop organization could use this, but the overwhelming amount of losses that are passed through benefit those at the very top. John, how will this play in the debate on Sunday night in St. Louis? What And also, what is the effective line of defense Trump might have when a citizen stands up and says, I pay my taxes every year, and I'm concerned, Donald Trump, that you won't tell us about your tax records, and insofar as we know about them, you – you know, ducked out of taxes for for twenty years. When yeah, you're I think a manifestly if you're, rich person. I think if you want the most pro Donald Trump spin, you would want to put on this is I know how to work the system, so I'll know how to fix it. Which is a um, an argument I don't find uh, that compelling from anyone, but it's been politically compelling for Trump because just because you know how to use the system has nothing to do with how you would use Congress and the executive branch to actually change the legislation. They're just like two entirely different things. I think the other thing you could say is to make the broader point, which is, you know, this may seem crazy, but with big risk, uh, you know, we want to encourage people to take big risks. I took big risks. It didn't work out. But the reason we have this in the tax code is so that in America, you can try and fail and Disney failed first and 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 align yourself with all the great American entrepreneurs who failed at first, but then were able to get That's back up on their feet. line. But he does not have the self he doesn't have the humility to take that line and actually own it. Well, this is what's it. interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's two things, the, the humility part. And then the second thing, which is a, the pet peeve of mine, which is that nobody explains the context of anything anymore. So they don't make the point that Emily made, which is, you know, this is about being able to take risks in America and fail and then recoup. And then he would say, and I did recoup and I came back. And so I'm going to bring America back. And that's exactly what we need is somebody who keeps fighting even when they're down. And is going to bring America back and make America great again. So I just don't think I real estate that. developers should be in, encouraged to take extra risks in light of the housing bubble and all the foreclosures, which brings me back to like, well, why can't normal people take write-offs for the money they lost in the housing market? Emily, if you're Hillary Clinton in this debate, how do you play it? And can you 
do you have to wait for a citizen to raise it or do you find a way to raise it without a without a without a town hall questioner doing it? And what's the what's the particular line of attack that you would use if you were? I think that Hillary Clinton just needs to raise the topic of what's in those tax returns that is worse than we already know. And she did some really effective speculating in the last debate. I think going back to that and just sort of raising the question of, you know, it's one thing to say, I didn't break the law. It's another thing to say I've been the kind of citizen who deserves to be president. I I feel like that's a different bar. Well, I think a couple of things to that. One is, Emily, it's clear that whatever is in the full tax returns is worse than whatever the Times has already shown in some sense. Because if Trump had a very effective defense, if he had, in fact, paid a bunch of taxes, he could even release selective years. He could say, look, in in 2001, I paid, you know, $37,000 in taxes. Um, But he, the fact that he won't release it just is highly suspicious and makes it all the more easy to sort of say, look how much smoke, look how much smoke there is. There's the fire is there. The the thing that I am confused about, and maybe John, you know, the answer is that Hillary Clinton did already use a very effective attack line about this in the first debate. She already, she already said that here are the reasons why he might be hiding it. Can she simply just repeat that? Or does she need to add to it in order to, to make something happen? You have two possible avenues. One is what to do with the taxes in a way that appeal to an audience that's listening. That's one approach. And the other is what to say about these taxes that will get under his skin. Because clearly they believe in the Clinton camp that when you, and there's been a lot written about this as well, when you question his business success and you go right at his personal endowment in terms of his uh, ego. his net worth and his success and his ego, that gets him in a place where he cannot think clearly he goes right he just must respond so the needling point we get she said it on the stump already what kind of person loses that much money when you're in a when you know what kind of casino loses a billion dollars the other argument she can make is um you know it wasn't just that he didn't pay taxes in the first debate he bragged about it and the advisors to the campaign and and people aligned with hillary clinton's interests say that that's what bothers the country the most in terms of polling and focus groups they've done regular people pay their taxes and they hate it and for him to behave that way makes them particularly angry so i think that's a an area where for the viewing audience if she can stay on that that would be a probably an effective whether he does it again or not doesn't matter he's already done it once so bringing up that he bragged about it i think is uh is something that might be politically effective do you think emily that this is going to make it more or less likely that trump tries to make a bigger deal out of the Bill Clinton affairs question as a distraction. Does he need a distraction from the taxes? And is that is it going to be uh, sex and Clinton? He needs a distraction. I think it would be much smarter for him to go after email server and Benghazi, especially in a room with a lot of other people whose predictions and facial reactions he can't control. That's what I would do if I was him. Yeah, I think... He basically just needs to stick with what he did with the first in the first 15 minutes of his of his last debate. She's a t- typical politician. Nothing changes with her. I may be a little messy and ramshackle, but I'm going to change things. And what do you got to lose? But he can't. Can he really do that for 90 minutes? Like, doesn't he need? A- well, clearly from the first debate, he couldn't. <laughs> no, but I mean, the- even if he could hold it together. You do need some nimbleness to kind of not sound like a, a one trick pony as the vice presidential debates 
uh, candidates did in theirs, which I know we'll get to in a minute. I think also the response to that from Hillary Clinton is, you know, what do you have to lose? Well, a billion dollars in one year as a private person. And he may be able to use the tax code to benefit him in private life to build a safety net for himself. But you, the regular people, when we get into a nuclear war, you can't use the tax code to fix that. I mean, that's the response, presumably, to to what he will say. And so that's a way in which this tax code, to the extent anybody understands this story, becomes a sort of signifier for big possible huge downside in a single year as a result of this guy's kind of behavior. That That's another way it seems to me this could work politically. Mike Pence won the vice presidential debate on Tuesday night against Tim Kaine. The consensus is that Pence was calm, collected, and conservative and essentially slipped out of the handcuffs of Donald Trump by never really defending Trump and pretending Trump didn't say all the things that he said. Kaine in my humble opinion, was irritating and a bit yappy. Like a uh, little doggy dog. Emily. <laughs> Emily <laughs> dog-like? This, uh, puppy-like? He was, a, he was sort of dog-like. He was yapping? I thought he was very like yeah. like a little puppy that was like biting. That, Not that a cute puppy. Endearing. That's, no. that's endearing. Puppies I don't mean cute. it endearingly. Yeah. Like the yappy puppy who's like biting your ankle. Don't call it a puppy. It's okay. like a 15-year-old dog that, uh, you know... Who's still Someone biting carries your ankle. on the plane. And no, but the, 15 year old, but the 15-year-old dog doesn't have that energy. Yeah. But it has the constant yap on the plane oh, of the person a who little carries dog. it in the little bag. A little yeah. dog. Yeah. yeah. Who told him did, to interrupt uh, so much? That was not smart. I did. Was, <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was just following plots, plots rules of engagement. <laughs> Emily, will this have any impact on the race, this debate? I think it's all good for Mike Pence. I subscribe to what I think is the conventional wisdom, which is like Mike Pence 2020 just went up in the world. But I don't really think that it matters. Since if you think that Donald Trump is not really going to be the president, which is not that out there a theory, and that he's just going to hand it over, then the fact that his second in command is like a normal conservative Republican is reassuring. But Donald Trump's still going to be the president. So what are you going to do? Right. So, John, I assume that what Trump, excuse me, what Pence was trying to do was to make Republicans feel better about voting for Trump because there would be an adult in the room that it's providing the moral cover that Emily was just talking about that. He wasn't going rogue by betraying Trump. He was actually that was a strategy to sort of make people feel like, oh, don't worry about Trump. Totally. And uh, I think this is a situation which Mike Pence's long term viability the strategy you would follow to keep that intact is exactly the same strategy you would follow if you were trying to elect Donald Trump, which is to say, don't try and defend Donald Trump. There's no upside to him trying to explain the birther thing because there is no explanation. Donald Trump's surrogates all haven't been able to do it. Donald Trump himself can't do it. So the idea that he didn't take the bait on birtherism or nukes or any of that stuff is what you have to do when you've got a candidate who says things that can't be defended and that the candidate himself doesn't want to defend. What Trump has done when he's tried to defend himself is say, well, I didn't say those things, which is exactly what Mike Pence said. So I guess my point is the claim that he was doing something special to preserve himself for for the next time around is actually no different than what he should do to preserve right. Trump at this right. moment. So, right. um, And he just, unlike Donald Trump, had prepared for the debate and also um, uh, was quick on his feet. He finally, after a few rounds, called uh, Tim Kaine on the, the claim that Hillary Clinton single-handedly marched through a hill past 
past pillboxes and gunners and exploding grenades and single-handedly kept the Iranians from uh, getting a nuclear weapon. Both overstated the the agreement and overstated Hillary Clinton's role in finalizing the agreement. Um, And Pence was quick enough finally at the end to say, you know, to call him on it. So he'd obviously done his homework. And and also, you know, you could tell this is a guy who – who was a talk radio show host who knew how to basically listen to like a caller yammer on and kind of just move past it. But I think the long-term liability is the fact that he couldn't defend his own running mate. And he would say, I'll be happy to defend Donald Trump. And then he would pivot and talk about Hillary Clinton, (laughs) which is a perfectly correct thing to do in the course of a debate. If you're going to be trying to score just at the end of the 90 minutes and see who, who wins, he did that perfectly. But that's not you know, elections don't end at the end of the 90 minutes of the vice presidential debate. And so it was quite a devastating uh, mashup that the Clinton campaign put together about Pence denying that Trump said these various things and then having Donald Trump himself, his voice, say exactly what Pence had said he didn't say right after it. And one of the things, the reason that's so powerful is obviously it not only contradicts Mike Pence, but in a world where nobody trusts the mainstream media or thinks, oh, there's a kind of more context than we're being given, when you hear the actual words come out of Donald Trump's mouth, that's, you know. Well, but but by the same token, no one trusts the mainstream media. And so when Pence is speaking in an unmediated way to an audience of 37 million people and denying things, yeah. then that is presumably effective as well. Yeah. Because they don't, it's, it's not the media telling you Trump said uh, Yeah, that. excellent point. It is amazing how far you can get in media by not being flustered or outrageous in your demeanor, just being calm and collected. It's a very devastating and effective strategy. I cannot think, John, you're a historian of this, but I can't think of an example of someone who, who was so calm who lost a political debate. Well, Dan Quayle was not didn't get hot in his debate, but he was uh, and and he was calm. It's just that he he just seemed so vapid, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like a polar bear on, on roller skates. I, you know, the the going back and watching that debate, by the way, the Quayle Benson debate, the you're no Jack Kennedy line is the one everybody replays. But what I was struck by is repeatedly they uh, asked quail what he would do if bush were you know to die and he were thrust in office and his answers were just completely unsatisfying and so he was calm and cool we just had he just had nothing to say and in that case it's the it's the achilles theory which is that he in the in the moment underlined his greatest weakness by playing into Mm -hmm. it um well i would also say that had quail been flamboyant and given ignorant answers it would have probably been even worse and they they won that election Right, I know that's that, that, that's the great point about the power of vice presidential debates. Is the greatest line in vice presidential debate history came from a losing team. Kevin makes the excellent point that Dukakis was calm, reasoned, and that killed him, particularly on the Bernie Shaw question about whether how he would react if he would support an irrevocable death, death penalty if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered. That's a great example. Yes, good job, Kevin. Thank Kevin, you, Kevin. He, <laughs> yeah, that's that's some good. That there's an historian in the room. Yeah, yes, exactly. A good thing there's somebody who didn't, didn't do an entire podcast on that. Uh, Emily, are there any moments from this debate? John John is always a big proponent of the debates are not 90 minutes. They are a series of 15-second moments that are then replayed. Are there any moments from this debate which will have legs? Or is it only the the one that was already pointed out, the mashup of Pence denying things that Trump said uh, and then showing that Trump said them? The mashup is good. I mean, I think that 
Tim Kaine's interrupting was irritating, but since he's not the candidate, I can't imagine that becoming an ad or anyone really like doing anything except kind of shaking it off and moving on. John, what do you think? Yeah, to- totally. I think, uh, no, the Clinton team has won the, and has designed their strategy, by the way, for the post-debate period, both in the Clinton-Trump debate and the Kane-Pence debate. They have been thinking about the post-game much more strategically than the Trump campaign has, and they have benefited from pretty powerful post-game coverage because they recognize it's not just about the 90 minutes. It's about what what the conversation is afterwards. So I can't think of a single clip from the Trump side that's been used in either debate. Uh, um, I mean, it, ju- it just didn't it just didn't happen. Well, there were a couple from the first 15 minutes of the first debate that played to Trump's strengths, I think. But yeah, you're right. So if you're Trump, if you're his team, you're looking ahead to Sunday. Now you have this example that Mike Pence has set. I'm sure that Trump doesn't want to think of it as a lesson to learn from. But I also feel like, again, the bar is super low for him. I and mean, we're basically expecting now that he cannot apologize. He can't mask his belligerent self. He can't even hold it together for 90 minutes. So what do you do? I mean, isn't there some way where you could actually turn in a decent performance that will then get rated as like a really good performance just because it will um, exceed our expectations? Yeah. I mean, the expectations are set so incredibly low. Right. Yeah. They're they're in the deep shale. I mean, they're not (laughs) just at the terra firma level. They are they are down where the magma burbles. Yeah. So if he if he manages to get together and does the 15 minutes of preparation that he seems unwilling to do, it seems possible. But but all signs are that he is un he is unable to, for example, give that great answer John just gave about taxes, where he would say, I I made mistakes and I've learned from it and I failed and I came back from my failure. He can't say I failed. He is unwilling to say that. And therefore he is unwilling to learn and adjust and so it makes it he may he may fall below the expectations that have been set for him. I don't know. Huh. But don't you think he could figure out a way to not let her get to him? Like, someone could say to him, look, like, you are bigger than that. Your job is to not let this annoying fly bite you. That seems like he could pull off, and that in itself would make a big difference. But you would think so, but he appears to be a man without discipline. Yeah. And and he's, what is he, 70-something years old? People don't get to be 70-something 70 70. years old. Every whim of his his has been met for the past uh, 50 years. He d- No one ever says no to him. He, everything he wants to do, he gets to do. That is not a recipe for someone who is going to be mentally flexible and able to change their habits. I mean, we've all dealt with people in their 70s. They're not always the most flexible people. And add to that being a billionaire and add to that being uh, a, a narcissist and add to that being incapable of admitting your mistakes. And I, he ought to be able to do it. Yes, it's a very easy thing for a, a person to do, but I'm not sure he is capable of it. I would add the other things. He thinks, and he's not wrong in terms of the primary success he had, he thinks that the attributes that are being criticized are the ones that brought him to the dance in the first place. And when you're in a moment of high stress, and this is why this is important for someone who has um, 
you know, complex views about whether presidential campaigns tell us anything about the presidency and the people's behavior in it. This is one where it actually, there is some linkage here. You're in a moment of high stress, a lot's on the line, and you need to have nimbleness and flexibility going in and in the moment. And that's also true of the presidency. And what happens in the moment, as we all know, of moments of high stress is we revert back to our most comfortable responses. They're the ones who've, that, that, that have helped us in the past. So you can do all kinds of prep beforehand, but it's the it's once you get into the hot kitchen that it that it becomes very hard to stay your impulses. If this is for humans, let alone for Donald Trump. It becomes difficult to stay your impulses and take on a whole new kind of behavior. It becomes increasingly difficult when the when the the forum you're in is a town hall, human interaction, slightly more gooey moment. Donald Trump hasn't done a lot of those. And when he's done them, he has not carried them off with a kind of John McCain success in the town hall uh, environment. And that's one of the reasons John McCain was winning in that setting was that people thought, I don't dis- I don't agree with him. I don't even know what he's talking about, but I'm getting some kind of sense from this guy that he's relatable and I like him. And it's and McCain had to do 114 of those in New Hampshire before that got across. This is not something that Donald Trump has in his muscle memory, um, the, the just the, the dealing with the voters part. So expectations are low, but they're low, uh, I think, for a reason. The Supreme Court came back into session on the first Tuesday in October, skipped the first Monday in October in deference to the three Jewish justices who were commemorating Rosh Hashanah. We had a nice discussion about that Curse last week. Curse them, back apparently, your if you're David I want to know if the court is going to uh, – how the court's going to pay that the extra cost it's incurring for the extra work that people are going to have to do. They basically came in for a day of non-work <laughs> and that they that work has to happen later. I just wonder about that. <laughs> Look, it makes sense when when a third of your, your, your workforce can't work to do something about it. But we don't need to relitigate. We don't need to relitigate that. <laughs> Good, because you already lost that argument once. Oh, my God. I didn't lose it. I just don't want to have it again. So let's not have it again. I was completely right about it. I just don't want to have it again. Mm -hmm. In any case, this Supreme Court will be sitting with eight justices and facing a lean docket this year. Republicans, of course, have refused to have a hearing, much less a vote on the nomination of Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia on the court. And as a result, the, the court is sitting low and will remain low until, oh, I mean, probably until the next president, but possibly, I suppose, if Hillary Clinton is elected, Garland may get a, a hearing and, a, and a, a vote. So, Emily, what cases that matter, if any, is this court going to hear? It is a lean docket that the Supreme Court has because it is clearly trying to avoid four four ties on really significant issues. As Justice Kagan said recently, that's just kind of pointless. And so the result is that the court is kind of just not deciding anything that we would normally spend a whole lot of time talking about. Um, They can't even figure out where to have lunch. It's really. So this week there was um, this really sad death penalty case was argued. Um, A man in Texas named Dwayne Buck was sentenced to death, I think, in the 1980s. His lawyer put on the stand, his own lawyer put on the stand, an expert from the state who argued that um, black people are are more dangerous in the future than people of other races. It's just this incredible. That was his own lawyer? Yes. His own he solicited lawyer? the testimony. 
Right. It's just this incredibly oh horrible uh, moment of racial discrimination. And it this case actually came up to the court before as one of prosecutorial misconduct, since it was a state's witness. Now it's back as ineffective assistance of counsel, which means that your own lawyer screwed up. And the court ba- made it very clear, I think, at oral argument that they were going to... Um, reverse and send this back. There's a question, too, about Texas's death penalty procedures and whether the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which has say over Texas, is just not allowing enough of these appeals to come through. So there could be a broader ruling that would grant more people relief in Texas. Anyway, so that's happening. And then there's a case about religion and state funding of religious schools. It (laughs) has the kinds of facts that make it slightly hard to see is like a huge issue. Um, it's about whether the state had to fund the rubberized things that uh, people put into preschool playgrounds to make them more safe at a Trinity Lutheran playground. You know, the the boundary between church and state and this whole question of whether when religious institutions run schools and other kinds of, you know, service oriented nonprofits, whether they should be treated as religious institutions that are denied state funding or as schools that get it. And then there's an interesting case about gender and citizenship called Lynch versus Morales Santana that's going to be argued in November. And this one is this weird leftover gender disparity involving our citizenship rules. So if you're an American father trying to convey citizenship to your children who were born outside of marriage, you have to have been in the United States for at least five years before your children were born abroad. But if you're a woman, um, a mother, you only have to prove that you were here for one year. And this is this like leftover idea from war babies, essentially, the idea that like American soldiers were going abroad, having lots of babies, we didn't want to give them citizenship. And when these cases starting to come to the Supreme Court, I think, like, 18, 15 years ago, I made longer, because I was in law school, the late 90s, Justice Stevens made a big mistake, I think, in an opinion in which he kind of seem to look back on his own war service and say that we just can't, you know, have the children of our soldiers born abroad treated as citizens like there were going to be too many of them. It's really just gross, honestly. And the U.S. soccer team, men's soccer team would be terrible if that were the case. <laughs> we have to get well, this kids. always has to do. The only people who are good players for us are those kids. Really? They were anyway, born of ahead. American servicemen in particular? A huge percentage of American soccer well, U.S. soccer team over the years has been children of American service. Oh, well, surely we need the Germany. brief then from soccer fans, the amicus, the soccer fan amicus brief in this case. So, Emily, what I don't understand is, is they just chose are, are there big cases that they've chosen not to hear that they've said just like let may delay this legal proceeding. Let's just not deal with this because I assume they're getting appeals on big issues. Yeah. So they decided not to rehear Obama's immigration action. Remember that? The end of last term, that 4-4 split, with en- which ended with, like, no deportation relief for those millions of people. If they had nine members, presumably they would rehear that. 
they've turned down some pretty important voting rights challenges. There was a case about Wisconsin and all the shenanigans that supposedly went on involving the elections there. They turned that one down. They're kind of staying out of some of the challenges related to voter ID and the ramifications of their Voting Rights Act decision, Shelby County, from a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of things that will come back, but those are the things they're the main things they're ducking for now, I think. Have you been surprised, Emily, just to take this in a slightly different direction, that the Supreme Court hasn't come up in either of the first two debates in any uh, significant way? I mean, obviously, they haven't been asked about it, but it seems to me that either one of the candidates would have a reason to bring it up. Right. I mean, it's a clear dividing line between them. And so for Trump, it's a really good way to reassure the conservative base that he is with them. He His lists of judges are, you know, stalwart, hard right conservatives. And then for Hillary Clinton, it's a way to say, look, I'm going to protect women's right to abortion. I'm going to make sure that same sex marriage and other gay rights decisions remain the law of the land. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think it's a vulnerability for either one of them? Maybe that's why if the moderators don't bring it up in the question, they are not bringing it up themselves. I don't think so. Let me think that through. I think for Donald Trump, it's what you said, which is you could imagine if Trump or his team were nervous about his performance in a debate, well, or nervous about his candidacy at all, because debates are watched mostly by people who already know who they like. It's a question of building their enthusiasm uh, that he would talk about the Supreme Court as a way of saying, who cares whether I do well or not tonight? All you need is my, you know, me to be alive and naming justices. And you should vote for me for that on that reason alone. I think that would also if he didn't uh, have a disinterest and disinclination to care about what Republicans in Congress were doing, I would think that would also be a way for him to send signals to his conservative and Republican audiences by saying is I can't wait to work with Paul Ryan. So I don't see there's a downside for Trump in that. I'm trying to think if there's a downside for Hillary Clinton with those reluctant Republicans. I can imagine that it might be. A little bit. In other words, for Hillary Clinton, there are a lot of reluctant Republicans who are scared of Donald Trump, but might get their mind refocused if they thought, oof, a permanent majority on for liberals on the court, like that's a 30-year indelible change in the culture and America that no president can undo. Well, it's a way that that Clinton is lucky in her opponent because Trump, again, is too much of an egomaniac to talk about this and to say, like, my only use is, is appointing conservative justice. He's, he wants to talk about himself and what he's right. going to do, and, right. and he doesn't the Supreme Court is not actually that interesting to him. Can I t- make a total aside, the voter ID? I learned something really interesting from one of Please. my colleagues. One of my colleagues is is working uh, – she's working in another job uh, doing voter registration in Florida. So I was asking her, is there any voter fraud? Are there people who you know, cl- clearly are trying to register to vote who shouldn't register to, register to vote? Or is that illusory? She said the only voter fraud they come across is people trying to – get these voter registration groups to register them falsely so that they can then claim <laughs> there's voter, voter fraud. But oh the only God. voter fraud is voter fraud that is trying to be induced by people who want to show there's voter fraud. And that that happens a lot. Right. That they it's get like people the who Gonzo are like... Dr- right, right. Totally. You, yeah. That's it's very fascinating. It's James O'Keefe. It's I was going to say. Yeah, they, get, they yeah. say, why are you... You know, you tried to register my 16-year-old son to vote. He He's... Uh, you know, why are you saying he's 24? He's 16. She said that's the real hazard that they're facing. 
Anyway, Super. if you have stories about that, Gap see, the Supreme listeners, Court is so boring right now that we can't even stay on topic for eight minutes or whatever. All right. So what good. about just a couple of minutes on the Garland situation? I sort of feel like if the Republicans come out of the election and they've really lost, they've lost the Senate, then they change their tune on Merrick Garland. They figure he's the best they're going to get. They put him through. They hope that, you know, there are no more appointments, that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer stay on the court until they're 90 and uh, and just keep going. John, what do you think? Well, it also depends on who's going to be the majority leader of the new Senate. Presumably, if Trump loses, there's going to be a lot of talk about how the Republican Party is a mess. So you would be embracing a strategy that would only exacerbate that messiness. So... But I, that's all super provisional, it feels like to me, because I think we got to wait where, you know, see where we are when we are when oh there. God. No, when the Republicans lose, it's not going to be the Republican Party's a mess. It's going to be renominated the wrong person. The Republican Party's strong. Look how we held the House. It's going to be a motherfucking catastrophe. Pardon my French. Uh, I think that based on the conversations I've had with a, with a, and maybe they change their minds and you might be right. Maybe that is the easiest thing to slip into. I think there are a lot of Republicans who feel like this isn't some tactical mistake we made. I mean, the Republican Party made, in other words, if there had been like a better primary process or if there had been more or fewer debates or whatever. I think they think that Don, there are definitely people who are in positions of serious power in the Republican Party who feel like the portion of the electorate that that elevated Donald Trump and the inability of the of the party or anybody to speak out about the dangers of electing somebody from that portion of the electorate needs to be fixed. That but, this comes out of the inside of the party, not just some. Well, like, but okay. But I guess what I would say is that the nihilistic "let's not work with Democrats, let's not compromise" elements of the party are not the ones who are going to feel. They're not the ones who feel that they're going to lose the election. That right. is that remains the heart of the Republican. House caucus. There isn't a caucus within the Republican Party, either from the Trump wing or the even the Ryan wing, which is all about let's find cooperative ways well, to work with Democrats. I think the Ryan wing it does look for cooperative ways. Again, it's not capitulation. I mean, it's cooperative. I, I think the what, what you're calling the Ryan wing, which I think is a wise thing to call it, still has strong ideological views. I mean, it's not like they've stopped being conservatives. But they also know that, A, compromise has to be worked out, and that's why he's worked out a few. And I also think they feel like they are going to be in a huge reclamation project after a, a Donald Trump loss. So th they might be even more encouraged to show they can actually govern and do stuff. The question is whether they're the Republicans who are reelected – let them do it. You can imagine if if this becomes a huge Trump problem, you can imagine a situation in which a lot of those middle of the road Republicans lose because Democrats beat them in so that you have actually an even more conservative right. problem right. for for Paul right. Ryan. So I, we'll see what happens. Time will tell. That's right. We we can only sit in wonder at the startling things that are ahead of us. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a fall beverage. Uh, what, what do you drink in the fall? What's the cocktail of the fall, John? It feels like it's finally time. We can put away put away our summery gin and tonics. I think people turn to the brown, you know, to the bourbon and things like that. I, I it's stick, the worst thing about fall. I just, bourbon is the worst thing about fall? All the brown liquors. Yeah. Ugh. Well, you could just stick to gin. You'd be fine. Do you think that's okay? I can continue oh, to have a gin. <laughs> believe gin me, believe me, do I think that's okay. I just think probably not for breakfast. Well, in any case, what will you be chattering about with your gin or your gin bourbon mix? I will be chattering about um, 
I was with my uh, CBS colleague, Kara Cordy, at uh, the debate, and we had arrived in the buffet line at precisely the moment that for some reason the buffet line had disappeared. And then right after we got our food, boom, another huge buffet line. This also happened to me at the Starbucks the other day. And so I was searching for a word to capture this phenomenon, which is that you arrive at a huge rush hour time, but somehow your path to work is completely free. Like there, there must be in traffic studies, there's got to be an expression for this. We haven't yet found the traffic engineer who um, has got the answer for this, but there is an expression apparently in Spanish, which I will not try to pronounce, but it is literally translated <laughs> to you have a good back. And that's what captures this phenomenon. So you that was very like, cool. You have a nice back. You have yeah, well, nice thank back. you. So anyway, I thought that was very uh, satisfying. And I realized after it was over that I guess I was cha- challenging. You have a nice uh, back too, Emily. <laughs> I was channeling The Atlantic Magazine, which has a, a big question at the end of uh, every month. The most recent one was, what concept most needs a word in the English language? And some of the entries were a concept for the email you put off responding to because you want to give it your full attention and thus never answer. (laughs) The act of uh, staring at electronics as though we had the superpower to speed up the function that they are performing. A social media post I want to share but can't because it's ruined by an obvious spelling or punctuation error and so forth and so on. (laughs) I like the big question, period. And I also like the idea of looking for words that explain – those kinds of modern complicated phenomena. Obviously, the Germans have built an entire language around this. They have words for every possible, like the ring left by coffee on Goethe novels in the springtime, as distinguished from the ring left by orange juice on Goethe novels in the autumn. Uh, so usually there's a German word for everything, but in this case, there are not German words for these phenomenon. And why don't we just say this? Anybody who has a phenomenon they feel like needs a word to uh, encompass it, please do send it in to um, to uh, gabfest at slate.com and we may address this in a future program. But we will not think of the actual wow. word because that part is never as fun. As the concept. Yeah, the concept is so, more Well, there fun are those the brilliant word. people who come... Just, oh, but there are brilliant people who get the, like, the, le mot juste. Um, by the way, le mot juste, right? A French expression about finding the perfect word from Flaubert French has apparently like thousands less, like many thousands less, wor- fewer, fewer words. Sorry. <laughs> that was perfect. Uh, fewer words than the English language. So uh, maybe that's why he was the always English, searching English for has, le mot juste. I think more words than any language. More yeah. words than German. Although German has this infinite expandability. Right. It's like a portmanteau. Accordion. Which is a French word. Yeah, that's why I used it. All Although right. I don't know if it's an actual French word. It, or portmanteau, if it's maybe, in fact, a port, portmanteau. It may be a portmanteau in French. It may. I don't think it's a real French word. I think it's a con- concocted French word. Emily, what is your concocted chatter? I am super enjoying a new podcast um, from the New York Times called Still Processing. It's by two of my colleagues, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris, who are just delightful to talk to. And they have really lovely rapport with each other. And I know it's time to recommend this podcast because I'm just looking at my own upcoming playlist and this week, the whole episode comes from the new African-American History and Culture Museum in Washington, and I can't wait to hear their take on it. That seems like just great location for them to tape from. So it's called Still Processing. It's on iTunes and everywhere else. Check it out. All right. My chatter is about a nice little viral story that made its way around the internet this week, although I saw it very early and then it 
blew up because it's so awesome. So I'm going to give you a dollar figure, thirty nine dollars and thirty five cents. <laughs> you know what I'm referring yeah, I to? Do. I do. I do not. So um, imagine, Emily, you're you're a mother. You've given birth. You're in the hospital. You've given birth, or your father, your your wife has just given birth. It's a C-section. Tough, unpleasant. You're in Utah. Your name's Ryan Grassley. <laughs> And you want to hold your baby. That's the amount they charge. You want to hold your baby. You want to have what you want to have what was called my skin, baby skin to skin contact with your baby. Huh? You will be charged $39.35 to hold your baby. What? This hospital in, in Provo, Utah oh my God. gave the gave the Grassley family a bill with an extra $39.35 charge because they wanted to hold their baby after their C-section. And wow. it's, uh, their excuse is, we need to have an extra person in the room when you're holding the baby. You need a nurse in the room when you're holding the baby, which I don't understand what? at all, because it's your baby. Well, you hold your baby all the time. Uh, God. What I want to know is if they didn't, if they said, okay, well, well, we'll do it, but we won't have any skin contact. We will we'll just touch clothing. Would that be okay? Also, what Would could they you not get, bill you? What could you get for 15 bucks? Yes, exactly. Paid a half of it. Four for eighty. Touch the baby's head. Right. Yes. Exactly. Wow. Yes. What would the deluxe version of all this be? If you and if you had twins, do you think they would have charged you double? Well, only one nurse. Do you need to double in the room? Yeah. Two for one. I don't know. Good but question. what? But what if one, what if the babies fall simultaneously? This is a question yeah. for the conundrum show. What yeah. would the cost be for double falling babies at a Provo, Utah hospital? Yeah. Foof. Goodness Do C-section knows. babies Good. really Double-falling. need the nurse also, to be held by their parents or whoever's in the room? I don't really get that. It seems like nonsense. The whole yeah. thing seems like nonsense. Also, by the way, double-falling babies is an excellent drink for the fall. Yeah. I would also point out that the Grassley's uh, hospital bill in general was sent around, and it was outrageous. The, the thirty-nine thirty-five was the least outrageous thing on it. The whole stupid process was $13,000, which is obscene. Wow. The entire system i mean you i'd be if you could pay the 39 to 35 and everything else was billed at that reasonable rate it would be okay wait but i thought the whole point of the the whole point of the chatter is that that rate is unreasonable it's a ridiculous thing it's just it, we, then you compare to the context of all the other things that, right. that hospitals are billing you for and you realize oh my god what a what a system our intern with a great mike dukaka save today is kevin townsend our producer is jocelyn frank Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. The entire roster of Panoply shows is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. It helps us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Remember, still a few tickets left for Boston. Slate.com slash live. Join us in Boston. It's going to be a great show right before the election. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, it's been a long, hard week here at uh, Castle Gabfest. But one of the things that has been made my week better is that I have been reading the Tremendously good Bruce Springsteen memoir. Are you yeah. Re- are you reading it, John? I assume you are. It's really rangy, right? It's, I mean, it's got everything. It's got like a subtle picture of America at that time and immigrant Catholic families, like fantastic. And then it's got weird, crude, perfectly pitched 
teenage boy lust after girls. Then it's got all of this deep thinking about his art and the and the course and arc of a narrative of an artist's life. It's it's really a lot going on. He really likes Jewish girls. You notice that? Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of philo-Semitism that comes uh, across. I mean, and it's not per- it's not always perfectly carried off. There <laughs> yeah. are parts where you're just like, um, that doesn't work there in that thing, and and where he free associates it sometimes. But I mean, let's forest for the trees here. It's, it's over really overall, good. it's amazingly good. Such a distinctive voice. Anyway, uh, we're not going to talk about the the Springsteen memoir, but it did get me thinking thinking about music as a as a political statement. What are the what are the political songs or what music Mm. in politics matters what are the songs which either for you or if you think for history have made a difference and in what way so i can think of songs that are very political kinds of songs like the lonesome death of hattie carroll the bob dylan song about a murder uh by uh, william zanzinger Hattie Carroll was the maid of the kitchen. She was 51 years old and gave birth to 10 children who cleaned up the dishes and hauled out the garbage and never sat once at the head of the table who didn't even speak to the people at the table who just cleaned up all the food from the table and emptied the ashtrays on a whole other level got killed by a blow, lay slain by a cane that sailed through the air and came down through the room doomed and determined to destroy all the gentle and she never done nothing to Williams and Singer And you who philosophize discreet and criticize all fear take the rag away from your feet now ain't the time for your tears Christopher Ricks, who is a great analyst of English literature, is also an incredible Dylan fan and gave a lecture. He's given this several different times, but there's one that's available that he gave about the poetry of Bob Dylan and uses the lonesome death of Haiti Carroll as his explanation of why Dylan just didn't write songs of the moment, but ones that when you compare them to Keats and Milton and others actually have a structure and form. He uses that song, William Zinzinger, and explains why it's so perfectly written. So if you're interested in that. There's a lot of hip-hop, certainly from my youth, not the BC Boys, but Public Enemy, the, the, the sort of Public Enemy ethos of the late 80s was very important in at least it had an overt political message, whether it mattered or not. But are there songs that you guys can think of that actually shaped politics? Well, so I have two entrants. So one is Nina Simone, Mississippi Goddamn, or Sinner Man, or I mean, a lot of her work. I watched that amazing documentary about her this summer and just emerged with a new appreciation of what a character she was and, and the kinds of risks she took. I mean, she was really making a kind of pitch to black radicals at a moment when that was um, not supportive, not at all mainstream. My country is full of lies. We are all going to die and die like 
flies I don't trust nobody anymore They keep on saying go slow That's just the trouble Desegregation Mass participation Unification Loretta Lynn for her song The Pill. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. I mean, that, like, really educated rural women about access to contraception. You know, she it was banned on some radio stations, but it also got played a ton. And a lot of people who are trying to do um, birth control education in rural America give her a lot of credit for just, like, making this song and the story of this wife who is controlling her own uh, reproduction. This all maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. The clothes I'm wearing from now on won't pick up so much yardage. What a great example. That's a, that's I've a never heard that. That's that's awesome. I mean, the others, it's kind of the soundtrack for change, like right. blowing in the wind is like, right. and all the Bob Dylan uh, songs. I mean, my favorite. So I have a, you know, obviously I have a condition with Bob Dylan, but um, <laughs> I mean, his, when you think about the, you know, times here are changing, blown in the wind, those were the soundtrack of the, of the, basically the civil rights um, masters of war. Those were all like in the air, but not, I don't think they changed anything specifically. The specific song of his that probably did actually cause change was probably hurricane about Reuben hurricane carter which is from the yep. it's the first song on desire now all the criminals and their coats and their ties are free to drink martinis and watch the sunrise while Ruben sits like blue in a 10-foot cell an innocent man in a living hell yes that's the story of the hurricane but it won't be over till they clear his name so that probably had the most direct effect of anything. I'm, but the, well, there are lots of songs you can think of which are about politics. Yeah, right. That commemorate uh, events that happened that look back. But right? do they? affect them right. is what i'm wondering is this that your the pill example is a great example i can't can i cannot think about any that affected them i can think of of course there are songs which sort of in retrospect become ways that people well i guess this is what you're saying is sound, the soundtrack i mean this land is your land yeah of and a lot of woody guthrie is the way when we imagine the union movement or we imagine the thirties or the great depression, it's, it is imagined with those songs playing and somehow guiding people. 
I bet there are nationalist anthems. I mean, if you think about um, what's the there was a song the Nazis had. Uh, I think it's a horse vessel song, which which became a Nazi anthem, but actually became a kind of galvanizing force, or or the Internationale for communism. The song actually was a unifier. Um, Swept people up. Yeah, these nationalist songs. Yeah. So, listeners, so listeners, we've run out of ideas. We would like yours. Please. All right, Slate Plus, we're limping to the finish. <laughs> it's good being with you. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.